14 to 17. And this title, Prayer Revisited, is appropriate for us a church to go back to this topic of prayer because we were there for all of January, but it's also appropriate because John has mentioned prayer and is going to now revisit it. He mentioned prayer in chapter 3 and verse 22. If you look back there, it just says, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And now in our text, John's going to address our prayers again. Let me just read the text for you. John, 1 John 5, 14 to 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. My first point comes from verses 14 and 15. I'm simply calling it confidence in prayer. This confidence in prayer. This is the confidence that we have towards Him, John says there in verse 14. And the confidence is this, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of Him. I believe these words of confidence and boldness are a direct result of verse 13. Right? In other words, right? Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know that you have eternal life. We talked about that last week, about the the knowing God, knowing that we have eternal life, knowing that we know that we have eternal life. And it's a result of that knowledge and that confidence we have eternal life. I believe that confidence in prayer flows. Right? Assurance of eternal life leads to confidence in answered prayer. Just want you to notice how extensive the promise is here. I mean, it's really incredible. I mean, it's, it's very much overwhelming that if we ask, it says in verse 14, anything according to His will, He hears us. And, and when he hears us, it's more than just he, he, he hears what we say. We know that God hears everything that is ever said. There's not anything hidden that won't be revealed someday at the, the judgment. But we know that he hears us like he hears and heeds. Like the call to Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is one, Lord. And it's, it's listen and obey and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So listening is, is heeding us. If we ask anything to, according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. And that even includes a, a prayer for life. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins not leading to death. Now we'll, we'll talk about that verse in a bit. It's a difficult verse. But just want you to see that, that, that God listens to his prayer. He grants requests, even prayers for life. And we know that God answers prayer for those who are his children. Those who are children of God. That promise doesn't include the many billions around the planet who make no profession of following Christ. For them, Proverbs 28.9 is true. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law... Even his prayers an abomination. And abominable prayers 
by coming up before the Lord all over the world. And he does not listen to them. And nor does this promise of, of receiving anything we ask according to his will include those who are believing in Christ but engaged in sin. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm sixty six eighteen. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. First Peter speaks about a prayers of a husband are not um, are, are hindered because he's not living with his wife in an understanding way. There, there are things that hinder prayers in our life to God. In fact, the fact that so is part of the premise of why we need to pray for one another. Verse sixteen picks this picture of a of a person in sin not leading to death, and and prayers his prayers won't be heard until the sin is resolved. But it's not him that's resolving this sin. In many ways, it's, it's someone else praying for him. And then that prayer helps resolve that sin so that then he can pray and be heard again, I think is some of the assumption there. But those restrictions, talked about here a little bit, sins in your heart, you're not an unbeliever. But if you are a, a believer and there's no known sin in your life that you're fostering in heaven, then this promise is true to us. An overwhelming promise of God. I mean, you can always picture the tidal wave just coming upon us. Ought to take us away. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of Him. Now, there's one caveat given here, though. Do you notice it? Those four words? What is it? According to His will. See, God isn't going to answer all of our requests we make to Him. He will answer all our requests we make to Him that are according to His will. And those He will answer freely. So as I'm thinking about illustrating this, consider your children. I think children are asking machines because they're not sufficient in themselves. They're totally dependent on parents. And they ask, and they ask, and they ask, and they ask, and they ask. And sometimes, right, it's the pain. They will ask if their friends come over, can come over, over and over and over again. They will ask if you will purchase some things, like maybe a new basketball, like maybe a new baseball mitt, maybe a new Lego set. They will ask for a new pair of shoes, a new pair of soccer cleats, some, some new clothes, or they'll ask for a bunk bed, they'll, they'll ask for a bike or a camera or a computer or an iPhone or, or a car or a house. As the kids get older, the requests get bigger. I've learned some of that from my, from my oldest ones. But they might ask for the need of the moment. Can we have pizza tonight? Or they'll ask, um, can we go skiing next weekend? Or they'll say, can we take a vacation to Walt Disney World sometime? Right? Kids, why don't you shoot for the stars, right? Just, just shoot. And, and no kids, you can wear down your parents too. I've been worn down. Many times. But it shows a desire there when they're just an asking and an asking and an asking. And parents, I want you to think now, okay, how it is you respond to your kids. Isn't it when it's according to your will? You grant their request? Right? When their request meets up with your plan, it becomes the plan and you make it happen. You'll go to the store and purchase that item for the kids. You will go on a Craigslist and look for that camera deal. You'll go to Orbitz and find some cheap plane tickets to make that vacation or make that request. 
You make it happen what they requested if it's according to your will. And that's what God does with our prayers. When we pray according to His will, we need to realize that we are praying, first of all, asking God to intervene in life. And we are asking God for something that we want, but we submit it to His will. And when it is His will, we can be 100% sure that it's going to happen. At least that's what the promise of verses 14 and 15 says. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. Isn't that the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy what? Thy will be done. We are praying. Jesus taught us to pray, God, may Your will be done. It's our heart's desire. And we pray for God to do His will, not necessarily our own. Though, There is a way in which God's will and ours match up. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Because when you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires then become His desires. And as He accomplishes His desires, your desires are accomplished as well. There's a way that those match up. But we submit our prayers to the plan of God, just like any child does with his parent. God... This is what we want. We, we believe it's, it's consistent, it's good, it would help. help. We believe it's in your plan. Oh God, it, is this in your will for our life? Please, if it be so, make it be. Now there are times we're not particularly fond of the will of God for our lives. But we accept it. That's how Jesus prayed in the garden. When He was about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's about to be crucified on the cross. He knew that was coming. He told his disciples, they're walking. He, he took them aside and said, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and raised on the third day. He knew that was happening. Yet when he came down, when it came down to actually facing that, Jesus desired a different reality. He said, My Father, if it possible, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thy will. And notice what he's doing is that he's praying for his, his desires. And, and isn't it interesting that Jesus was praying contrary to the will of God? He, he knew full well he'd have to drink the cup. He knew that this is why He came to earth, to die on the cross for our sins. He knew that His hour had come, which He would depart from this world to the Father. And yet Jesus, in His humanness, said, God, let that cup pass from me. He prayed that fervently. Luke, the doctor, spoke about how He sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. He did not want to go to the cross on one level. Another level, Scripture says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. It was a greater reality that was beyond the glory that He would have that He went to the cross. But He was not excited to bear the wrath of God for the sins of those who would believe. And yet, He submitted all, yet not as I will, but as you will. And I just think, if Jesus is praying contrary to the will of God, submitting it to the will of God, boy, there's lots that we can pray. 
perhaps contrary to the will of God, but we don't know, and putting it in God's hands and saying, God, we will submit to the, the will of God. See, God has reasons, right, for not giving us everything that, that we want. He has reasons for not answering our prayers. Remember the Apostle Paul, the thorn in the flesh, some physical ailment, some difficult person or demonic, demonic being. We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was, but we know it was painful. We know that it was awful. We know that Paul wanted to get rid of it. He prayed three times that it would leave. God, can you take away this thorn of the flesh? And God says, no. God, will you take away this thorn of flesh? He says, no. God, will you take away the thorn of flesh? And God says, no. He wanted the thorn of flesh taken away. God said, no. And the deal was, it wasn't according to God's will. God's will was that the thorn would remain. And he explained to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfected in weakness. In other words, his thorn was for some character building. His thorn was to perfect in Paul power through weakness. And isn't character building why we don't answer our every whim of our children as well? I mean, what happens if we would answer every desire of our child? Wouldn't they become spoiled brats? Destined for trouble? who've got everything they wanted. I don't think it's any different between us and God. If, if, if God would give us everything according to our will, we'd be spoiled brats, destined for trouble. That's what God was doing with the Apostle Paul. He wasn't going to take his throne away. He wanted Paul to be weak because in his weakness, God's power would work mightily through Paul. And when Paul came to understand that, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because he knew those things weaken me, but God works in me powerfully. So children, if you think about the things that, that your parents do in your life, by, by withholding some things or by putting some things in your life, like chores or responsibilities, right? The cleaning the dishes and doing the laundry and vacuuming and mowing the lawn, cleaning up the garage and doing this or that. These things are things that your parents put on you for your good. And so you ought to say with Paul, most gladly I will boast. I will glory in my chores. Kids, you going to do that next time? Next time you're, you're going to grumble, I will glory in my chores because through my weakness, God's power is perfected in me. And when it comes to praying, here's what I say. I say, pray big and accept God's answer. You never know when your request will align with God's will. Because when it does, it's going to be answered. And you can be sure of that. This is the confidence that we have. That's the idea. Confidence we have. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of Him. This week, I prayed big this week. I prayed big for a small concern of mine. Yes, most of you, you know, I'm in the midst of a, a doctor of ministry program through Southern, Southern Seminary. It's a real practical degree. And one of the things I'm working on now is forming like what kind of project I would do so as to help this church. It's kind of what, what the school is, is all about. Strengthen a weakness in our church right, through this basically forced project upon me. I'm beginning the phase... Not yet um, got that finalized. Anyway, this past Tuesday, like six days ago, I had a, had a paper due. And um, 
typical of, of me, at least, as procrastination was there. And um, I, I, I didn't quite finish it. I worked on it a bunch Monday, didn't quite finish it by Monday night. And so as I was looking for my, my Tuesday, it was a typical Tuesday. Tuesday, I tried to do death by meetings right? because it's just the best, best time. So I, I had a, a breakfast meeting lined up. I had a lunch meeting lined up. I had kids club after school. I had a meeting after um, a meeting before dinner and a meeting after dinner. And then I had um, my paper was due at 11 p.m. As I was looking upon that day, late Monday evening, I wasn't done, and I just I just needed every last little segment of time on Tuesday that that I could have. And um, do you guys remember what happened last Monday evening? Where's your weather guy? Where's Where's Dylan? What was the What was the weather like on Monday evening? Do you remember? Snowing. Snowing. <laughs> okay, and you remember there was potential of this big snow coming in. And Yvonne was on her iPhone and reading. Oh, and she said, oh, three to five inches, four to six inches. I'm not sure if it got up to eight inches or not, but this big storm was going to come through and lots of rumors about school being canceled. And so kind of I'm back in school now a little bit. And I'm like, yes, it'd be, it'd be good for school to cancel. Our kids were getting excited. Their school actually was canceled way prematurely, all right? But, but I remember <laughs> that evening... We're lying in bed, so I practice before we go to sleep. We each pray, and and I pray, Lord, please bring the snow. (laughs) Please cancel school. You know, God, how incredibly helpful it would be for me if school was canceled. Because if school canceled, there's no kids club. And there's just, there's a window of time that would be like, like perfect for that. And um, so I was, I was hoping for that, and uh, and if that, I was helping coach a basketball team for David, and so that would probably be canceled. And this kind of, I, I would have some freedom on that day. Is that audacious or what? Is that praying big? I think that's praying big. I'm praying for the God of the universe to control the weather patterns for my benefit. As many students have done throughout the years, I know that. Now, I have no doubt that God controls the weather. I mean, Psalm 135, 6 and 7, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds to rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. So it makes God different than the weathermen, right? The weathermen report the weather, but God brings it. And He brings the weather, and He decides the weather's going to come. And I pray that God would would bring that forecast and bring that snow. And what was in doubt was not whether God could do that or not, but whether He would do that or not. And for all I know, there are other believers in Rockford competing with God. Right? There was that city official who didn't want to get out and plow the, the roads because his workload was already maxed out, and then he's going to be busy with this as well, compile on top of what he wants to do, and he didn't want to do that. Or the working mother who had no more personal days to take off work to stay home with her children who are normally at school during the school hours. So that, you know, maybe the godly working mother, just, God, please let this, let this snow pass and let it not, not be stormed. Don't cancel school. I can't afford it at work. Or maybe the lawyer who had a, who had a, a meeting downtown Chicago in the morning and if the snow came, I mean, it would be a four-hour drive downtown Chicago. Just didn't want to compete with the, the snow and so maybe was praying fervently for that. 
And for all I know, there are other believers in Rockford praying. I know that there were students in our house who were hoping and praying for snow not to be there. But maybe there's an independent snow removal worker whose livelihood depends upon snow. Is praying, God, bring this snow because we just need another night out to help us fill our quota for able to build people. Or the high school student facing a test the next day when she was unprepared. Or the third grader wanted to simply go out and play in the snow. God, bring this snow. I want to have it. Well, I prayed to God, let him know my position. I was on the snow side of things on last Tuesday. I was on the lots of snow side. And you remember what happened, right? Snow went north. You know what? Rockford is kind of funny, right? Because as, as the snow comes from the west, often it like, it like goes around this, right? It totally like misses us, like all the time. And it, it, it pulled the whole misaroo kind of thing, and it missed us totally. And yet God was gracious. My after-dinner meeting canceled because of sickness. I had two hours that God just opened up for me, just right then and there. And I could finish my paper. And, in fact, I finished the paper five minutes before the deadline. <laughs> it changed the weather, changed my habits. But God, God showed His kindness to me, I do believe, in helping right when I needed it. That's what it means. Now, sorry for the person who was sick. Okay, I'm not. But thankful for God to be gracious to me with that. And I trust that's how you're praying. Just, just letting, you know, nothing is too small to pray to God for. It's whatever we ask for, whatever concerns you have in your heart and your mind. Unburden yourself and just give them to God. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. And his care for you says he wants to take your burdens off your back. So give them to God. Knowing that if his, your requests align with his will, they'll be answered. So at this point you might say, well, what's the use of praying? If God's will is going to be accomplished anyway, why, why do I need to pray? Well, here's why. Because God's will is that you pray. God's will to accomplish God's will is through your praying. God establishes the ends, but He also determines the means as well. In fact, verses 16 and 17 are an instance where God says that He will answer your prayers. So let's go from the confidence of prayers to the ministry of prayer. This is intercession. This is praying for others. Want to read verses 16 and 17 for us? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. To death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, now we come here, we got lots of questions. The questions abound. Like, what's the meaning of brother? Christian, non Christian? What is the sin not leading to death? Like, what, what, is, what does that mean? I thought the wages of sin was death. What about a sin that doesn't lead to death? What is, what is that? What is life? Is it eternal life? Is it spiritual life? Is it physical life? So the death, right? Eternal death or spiritual death or physical death? What's the sin that leads to death? What is that? What does it look like? Why doesn't John just say that we should pray for this? Or that we should not pray for this? He says, I, I don't say that you shouldn't pray for this. I don't say you should pray for it. Why is John so aloof? Why does John clarify things in verse 17? Now, 
the answers to these questions then will guide your interpretation of this passage, kind of however you go with a lot of these, these decisions here. And I'll do my ver- best just to open these verses. And I like to stay, stay wh- where we can in the Scriptures. I'm not going to try to conjecture very much at all here. But let's just walk through these verses. I want to give you the most basic understanding that anyone who has, has any different interpretation will, will accept if they accept the text. So here it is. There's this brother who's sinning. And the sin is a particular type. It's in the category of a, of a not leading to death sort of sin. That's contrasted with, at the end of verse 16, this sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying what it is, but there's this brother who's doing this sin not leading to death sort of sin. And um, there's these two categories, whatever they are. I'm not telling you what they are. I'm just saying that everyone who looks at this passage will agree. So this guy is committing this not leading to sin kind of death. And someone alongside this brother, sees that he's committing this not leading to sin sort of death, sort of sin, not leading to death sort of sin, and must mean some kind of outward sin, something that's plain and, and obvious, it's observable, it's not some secret sin of the heart, it's, it's something that's clear and observable, and you can see it. And the presumption here is that the one seeing his brother is led to prayer. He, he will pray. Now, that might be a command. He will pray. Or it might be just an observation out of love for his brother. He's just led to prayer. Whatever it is, however it is, we don't know. But we know that he, he will pray. And we know that God will answer this prayer on behalf of this sinning brother. And that God will give him life, whatever life is. Whatever sort of life this is, God will, will give him life. And to be clear, John mentions that this promise of giving this person life is only given to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Because on the other side, there's this sin that doesn't lead to death, and God's going to answer that, but there is this sin that leads to death. And if someone is committing such a sin, John places no burden on us to pray for such an individual. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. I mean, the, the, the assumption is this, I, I believe, that, that those who are committing a sin leading to death are so far gone and uh, there's no hope that, that life is going to come. You can simply let them go. You don't need to pray. God's mind's made up. He's not going to change. Their future is secure. It's been determined. Okay, now, just to be clear of this, John then, in verse 17, brings up just a clarifying comment about sin, lest you become warped a little bit, like, okay, there's the sin that doesn't lead to death, there's the sin that leads to death, oh, maybe we can enjoy the sin that doesn't lead to death because it doesn't lead to death, and we have the promise that we will have life. He said, nothing doing. He says, all wrongdoing is sin. I think you can put that in the, uh, uh, the reverse as well. All sin is wrong. He doesn't want to think less, let us think that any sin is acceptable behavior. But he does say there is this sin that does not lead to death. So even though it's wrong, it's not, it's not death producing. Right? And on that, everyone can agree, but then it comes down to, how, okay, how, so how do you interpret this? How do you understand this? And I think probably the, the crux of it is, is understanding this sin. Because once you understand what this sin is, a lot, of, a lot of things fall into place. And there are, I just count, seven different interpretations and here, here some are. 
The sin unto death is a denial of Christ. Apostasy from the faith. So that would be the sin unto death. I guess that, that's over here, just apostasy. A sin unto death is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus dealt with that, talked about that in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, the sin unto death is basically so deadly that it will lead to death. Whether that's murder, even that leads to death, or whether that's some crime that will judicially lead to death, or even adultery, which maybe in the Old Testament even had a, a death warrant on it. Another view is that sin is a willful persistence in sin. Just a, a willingness to stay in sin is the, the sin. Um, another view is that it's some kind of combination of the above. Kind of mixing some you know, apostasy and staying in that sin. And another view is that it's so undefined that we can't possibly know what this sin is. Right? So that spans the spectrum. From here are these views to all these views or we don't even know what, what any of them are. And uh, then I, th- I think there's another issue here. that he, When John tells us he doesn't command us to pray, well, Why? This, this gets into understanding a little bit about why, why is it that way? Is it because it's against God's will to save such a one? Or, or don't pray because you can't have this assurance of the answer? Well, we don't know. Um, this, some interpretations of a life, I've mentioned it a little bit. Like So, so whatever the sin is, what kind, of, what kind of death are we talking about? Are we talking about physical life, physical death, spiritual life? Spiritual death, these things get into there. And, um, you know, there are examples in Scripture that people often go to so as to try to reconcile this and understand this. In fact, mostly I, I found that people tend to just say, okay, boom, what is this? And they'll, they'll go to passages that talk about physical death, like Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story in, in Acts chapter 5? Let's just turn over there. We could go there. Acts chapter 5. Where, basically, they saw the example of Barnabas. who had sold his property and said, here it is, laid the proceeds of the apostles' feet. And Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, chapter 5, verse 1, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of the land, laid the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, was it not yours to own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Why then have you contrived this deed in your heart? You not lied to man, but to God. And so here Ananias, he committed the sin unto death. Because what happened? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such, for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in. They found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon those who heard such things. Well, no duh. Great fear would come about. Start lying to God. And so there's a, a sin unto death. And so they say it's lying to the Holy Spirit or deceiving in a, in a willful way. 
um, perhaps. There's also a very curious sin unto death in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that speaks about this sinful man in a congregation who Paul delivers over physically that his soul might be saved. He said, though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, 1 1 Corinthians 5.3. I'm present in spirit as if present. I have already pronounced a judgment on the one who did such a thing. And he's sleeping with his, um, whatever, his father's wife. And the church was boasting about it. Look how open-minded we are. And, and Paul says, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, so people think about physical death. Or as, as we'll see later as we transition to Lord's Supper, First <clears throat> Corinthians 11 verse 30 speak about people who are taking the Lord's Supper and properly died. So they're talking about a sin where, where people died a physical death. And of course there are passages in the scripture that <clears throat> speak about a, a spiritual death. Like uh, Hebrews chapter 6 speaks about this and speaks about why you shouldn't pray. This is a famous passage, maybe lots of you know this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do. We will press on if God permits. See, if God works in us to press on, we'll press on, is what he says. And then he says, For it is impossible. In the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And so some people say that this is, well, that's the parallel there. Hebrews 6, that they have been in the assembly and now they're out. And there's no opportunity here for repentance. It's impossible for these people who have been enlightened, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. If they've tasted that and then they've turned away, there's no chance for repentance. That's why you shouldn't pray for them. Or other people, as I mentioned before, will jump to this, this issue with Jesus and the Pharisees where you know they're, they're blaspheming against Christ and saying he's a he's son of Beelzebul. And he, and he says, basically, you, you can blaspheme the Son of Man, but you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That sin will never, ever be forgiven. And so they pull into that about not, not praying for them. And, and I want you to see what's happening here is that in order to get a tough passage, instantly what happens, often you get out and you start looking at other passages of Scripture, which is okay, okay? But this is letting framework apply to your text. The best thing to do, however, and sometimes that's the only thing you can do, is kind of look to see other parallel passages. It helps, helps govern your interpretation. But I would contend this. I would contend the best way to look at this is to say, what does John say in 1 John that might give us hints about what this means? Okay? So just think about that. When is 1 John talking about anything, anything like this? And here's what I'd say. 1 John 2, 20. I think, is something which is addressing this. Because whatever this means, there may have been some ambiguity in the minds of the people whom John is writing, or there may have been some clarity. They probably knew it better than we know it. So here's, what did the original hearers see and understand by this? And they experienced people who were sinning in such a way that was leading them astray, perhaps leading them to death. First John 2.19, 2, rather. <clears throat> 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. <clears throat> Excuse me. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So picture what that means, right? Is you've got people who are part of us, but never really one of us, who at some point then left, and John then says, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they were of us, they would have remained. But they went out so that it might be plain that all of them are not of us. Now when he talks about us, what's he talking about? He's talking about genuine children of God. He's talking about those who are here, part of the faith. And so if those people were here professing, looking like it, and then they leave, John says, nope, they were never of us. Oh, they looked like it, but they weren't part of us. And I think that that perhaps is a good interpretation governor upon this passage where you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death. It's probably a a sin that's being committed. There's a weakness there where someone is in the congregation and struggling with the sin and wanting to get rid of it or turning from it or maybe maybe backsliding some or kind of coming, whatever, a little bit and kind of on the fence and God says pray for them and that person will be restored. But there are others who are are going out and if they're not part of us, what are they? There are two types of people in the world. As 1 John 3 verse 10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So those out there who left us are those who are not practicing righteousness. They're not loving their brother. They're pursuing their own thing. And they, John calls them, children of the devil. This is ontological. They are children of the devil. That's what they are. As opposed to us who are children of God. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer here is, has eternal life abiding in him. So the, the people out there right, are the ones who are hating their brother. The, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And the murderers don't have any life in them. They don't have life. They're on the path to death. These are the ones who are, are going that path. And so you want to say, okay, well, well, how is it that they, they got there? Well, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, describe these, these deceiving spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see where they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So you got these people in the world who are coming in and they're trying to deceive and they're trying to bring out and they're not confessing Jesus in the flesh. Right? They got some false doctrine and they're trying to bring people out and I think that they brought people out. Who did they bring out? They brought out the people, or First John chapter 2, verse 19, who were with us. And they went out, and now they're not part of us. Here's my interpretation. Trying to look at First John to understand what's going on in First John. John's trying to say, okay, these people are in, and these people are out, and he's painting it just crystal clear. And he's, he's not painting the, the believer who's struggling with assurance. He's pointing about the person who's outside who has clearly known because they've been in, 
and they have clearly rejected and they are out and that's where they want to stay. And what John says about them is they are committing a sin leading to death. I take that eternal death. When John talks about life and death, he doesn't talk in the epistle at all about temporal life or or living or breathing or physically dying. He's talking about eternal life and eternal death. Everywhere in the epistle he's talking about that. And so I think he's talking about eternal death, that those who commit sins um, that leads to death, there is sin that leads to death. What's that sin? Apostasy, leaving us and being a part of us and not being one of us. And for those who are outside, John says this, I do not say that one should pray for that. So someone's been in, clear, they've apostatized, they've got out. You don't need to pray for that. I think Hebrews 6 applies directly. I would take the same interpretation on that. You have people who have in, have seen, have tasted, touched, seen the power of God, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then they've fallen away and gone out. It's impossible to restore them to repentance because they're on that path to death. No need to pray for them. They're demonstrating themselves that they don't believe God. And that's right, chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God is a testimony of himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. And he's not believing the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. There's the testimony. It was right there, and they didn't believe it. They went out. Whoever has a Son has a life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have the Son of God, you're in. You've got the life. If you're out, you don't have the Son of God. You don't have the life. And it could be that there's no hope for you. Now, instantly, right, in my mind, I start thinking about, well, is that really a Christian thing to do, not to pray for people? Maybe people who have been through church discipline. Maybe people who have refused repentance. Maybe people who once were among us and have been out. I mean, names and faces might start coming to your mind. And am I saying don't pray for them? Well, it's interesting. Paul, John doesn't say don't pray for them. He just says, I do not say that one should pray for that. I think you got some freedom there. But I don't think that you have a responsibility for people like this who've been in and have gone out because they've seen, they've known, they've rejected, and boy, they, they may come back. You don't, ha- you don't have that responsibility to pray for them as, as opposed to the one who's a sinning brother, has some sin or involved in some sin, you see it, you confront it, right? You, you Matthew 18 and come and you, you win your brother, you pray for your brother. There's a responsibility there. But I, I think that there's some removal of responsibility. You don't need to feel burdened with that. But there's other passages of Scripture that speak about the long-suffering of God. I don't think it's wrong at all to pray for them. Because we don't know. But First John might be talking about crystal clarity. It's clear. They've clearly rejected. Never a chance coming back. Maybe. But I think it's okay to pray. I think Luke 15 pictures God looking out, and so we should look out, be willing and desirous to see sinners come into the fold, for sure. But I don't think that it means you shouldn't pray for them. And in fact, I think there's reason to pray for them. I want to tell you the story of George Mueller, my closing illustration here. He started 117 schools, educated 120,000 children. He raised up through his network of, of orphans and stuff in England in his years. That's a lot of children. And did it all with prayer. He believed that more than 30,000 souls came to Christ under his ministry and answered a prayer with his, these children. People prayed faithfully. 
And he prayed faithfully, in some cases every day for 50 years for God to save some. And so, so begins the, the testimony, uh, I forget who this was, some, some writer. He says, in November 1844, he was interviewing um, uh, George Mueller. And George Mueller says this, in November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission for these five. Eighteen months passed before the first one was saved. Five years lapsed, then the second was converted. Six years passed before the third was converted, and the last two remained unconverted. And Pastor Charles Parsons, in this interview with George Mueller towards the close of his life, asked him, If he spent much time on his knees in prayer, Mueller responded, I've been praying every day for 52 years for two men, sons of a friend of my youth. They are not converted yet, but they will be. How can it be otherwise? It was asked on what ground he so firmly believed this. His answer was, there are five conditions that I always endeavor to fulfill. By observing these, I have the assurance of answer to my prayer. One, I have not the least doubt Because I'm assured that it's the Lord's will to save them, for He wills that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we have the assurance that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Mueller referred back to our text. Number two, he says, I've never pleaded for their salvation in my own name, but in the blessed name of my precious Lord Jesus and on His merits alone. Third, I always firmly believe in the willingness of God to hear my prayers. Mark eleven twenty four, prayer can move mountains. Fourth, I am not conscious of having yielded to any sin, for if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, Psalm sixty six eighteen when I call. Fifth, I have persevered in believing prayer for more than fifty two years for some, and will continue until the answer comes. Luke eighteen seven, shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry to him day and night? It's the story about the widow. And so George Mueller did this for fifty years. And when George Mueller went to heaven, praying firmly in faith, thanking God in advance for salvation of those for whom he was praying, within months of his passing, the last friend on his prayer list was converted. And God answers prayer. And there's a way that George Mueller believed God for the prayer. The requirement here just says, I don't say, either way. But George Mueller says, I'm going to grab hold and I'm going to pray. And so you, just, you think about those who are outside you can wage and look and see. But pray to God to change their heart. We don't have assurance here that that will happen. But maybe be like George Mueller and pray every day for 50 years for the salvation. Maybe you have children in your life. Maybe you have friends in your life. I know there are former people of our church come to my mind who are out. And may the Lord be gracious to them. So let's pray and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and discern these difficult things. Pray you'd give us confidence in prayer as we revisited prayer today. God, that we might have confidence in prayer and that we ought, might also have a, a ministry of prayer as well. God, that we might sincerely and truly pray for other people. Just even know how that helps. Just even this morning, prayed for somebody and texted them. I was praying for them and they were so encouraged. So God, I would pray that you would help us as a church to have an interceding ministry for others would pray for the sin that so easily entangles us. God, to be set free. God, to be set loose. 
God, that you'd help us all to, to know, God, what it is to have unhindered prayer before you. And, and God, we all experience in many ways the frailty of our faith. And Jesus said, if you just had faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. God, our faith is small. Help our unbelief, O oh God. And help us to have this assurance that John is asking for, that we might pray big and accept the results. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.